Okay, good morning, everyone, and welcome to this week's virtual plant clinic. My name is Bill Lester. I'm with University of Florida IFAS Extension Service here in Hernando County, Florida. And normally I would be joined by my regular co-host, Lily Browning, but Lily had another engagement today, so she won't be able to join us. And then I tried to find some other guest speakers and guest hosts to join me. And it seems like this is just a very, very busy day for everybody. So today it's gonna to be just me and you. And as always, this is your time. If you have any kind of lawn and garden questions, any comments, anything that you'd like to discuss, if you have suggestions for classes that we could offer, different topics we could teach on, because I know after a certain point when I'm scheduling and planning out my classes in advance, I start thinking, what do we do? I've, I think that we've covered pretty much everything. And we, when we reach out and ask people for their suggestions and ideas, we always get a lot of really great ideas. So feel free to share any class ideas, any topic ideas you might have. I see some of our regulars are tuning in. Good morning, buddy. How are you doing? And good morning, Lee. How are you? Sorry, guys. Lily's not here with us today. And the funny thing is, next week it'll be Lily, and I believe Bernie, but I won't be here next week. And then for the next couple of weeks after that, it'll be me, but Lily will be out of town once again. So I think we're not back together again until the end of September. So that's pretty much a month from now. So don't worry. I mean, we're getting along just fine. We didn't have an argument. We're, you know... We're just kind of taking turns running this because we really want to try to offer this every week and be consistent and come back on for anybody new who runs across us or runs across the link and has a question. Good morning, Basem. How are you? So if we have any lawn and garden type questions today, please feel free to put them in the comments section and we will do our very best to answer them. So let's see very quickly what's happening in a lawn and garden. Right now it is August 25th, and it feels like August. Here in Central Florida, in Hernando County, it's hot. We've been getting pretty regular afternoon thunderstorms, like the really big thunderstorms. So sunny and hot all day. The big dark clouds blow in late in the afternoon, and you just get a downburst for a little bit. Wow, Buddy says it's overcast to 75 up there. Um, my computer says it's 81 here, but that's always kind of deceptive. It's probably warmer than that at this point. So obviously, we're starting to get a little bit in towards the end of summer, beginning of fall, although it's not going to feel like fall for a while. Except for Buddy, it's going to feel like fall sooner for him than it will here for us in Central Florida. And Lee, I don't know when it starts to feel like fall down there in South Florida. Maybe not till Christmas time sometimes. I know we've had years where it's just really warm here until pretty much Christmas. And then we'll get our taste of really, really cold weather. But remember, the fall is coming. So now it's time to start making plans for your fall and wintertime vegetable garden. There's certain things that you can start putting in very, very soon here that are warm season crops, but you can put them in for the second warm season, which is fall here. And you need to start thinking about what do I wanna grow this winter? Do I wanna grow lettuce, 
radishes, broccoli, cauliflower, cabbage. What varieties do I want to grow? You need to look through catalogs and order the seeds now so that they have time to actually arrive in the mail. And for some of those things, you're going to want to start transplants. I do a lot of that. I have a lot of trays with little cells and one seed per cell. And they come up, I transplant the larger pots, larger pots, and then out into the garden. So it's time to start planting all that and getting everything, all your materials gathered together, getting everything in place to be able to um, implement that when the time comes. Because before you know it, uh, fall and winter will be here. And Lee said, yeah. It doesn't really get to be fall and winter down there in Broward County till December. That's about what I thought. And she just planted some more okra and summer squash. You should have enough time for okra to grow. Okra loves it when it's really, really hot and steamy. Summer squash is tricky to grow. It doesn't do well when it's super hot, steamy, and really wet because you have a lot of disease problems with it. But you should be able to hopefully have good luck with it down there. I know that South Florida is very different. They grow a huge number of vegetable crops down there commercially during the fall and winter. So they have their time to put in tomatoes and squash and then eventually celery, romaine, every kind of green leafy thing imaginable is grown down South Florida in the middle of winter. But it stays warmer down there than it does here in Central Florida. So we have a question here from i hope i don't mess your name up too badly jaludadin from trinidad and tobago in the caribbean well good morning and thank you so much for joining us they have a class suggestion how to encourage helpful insects or to have a mixed wild and cultivated home garden i've done a number of classes on Helpful insects, basically beneficial insects, or sometimes we call them good bugs and bad bugs. Very, very important topic. People need to be familiar with the beneficial insects that might be in your garden and landscape. And obviously, if you go out and look at your uh, garden and you see ladybugs, you don't want to go, oh my gosh, I see insects. I better go grab some spray and get rid of them. No, ladybugs are very good bugs, and I think most people know that. But there are dozens of other insects that are just as beneficial and just as important that you don't want to spray and get rid of. So it's really important that you start studying a little bit and learning the differences between the ones that are going to eat your plants and the ones that are going to eat those who are going to eat your plants. So that's a good suggestion. We're going to have to do that again. I don't know if I have any recordings online for any classes that we've done in the past on that topic, but let me go ahead and share this. You know, both Lily and I do have a lot of classes that we've given in the past, and we try to record all of them, and eventually they get cleaned up and tweaked, and our video expert, John Cancel, puts in the music at the very beginning and the title slide and the music at the end, and they all go up on Hernando County Government YouTube channel. So here is the link. If you go to YouTube and just search for Hernando County Government, you'll find the, um, the page, the site. If you go there and look under playlists, I have a playlist for Hernando County Extension, and Lily has a playlist for 
Hernando County, Florida friendly landscaping. Lily has like the well, last I looked was like 85 classes up there. And I'm behind that, but I do have quite a few classes recorded and up there for you to watch. We did classes in the past on growing strawberries, sweet potatoes, calabasa, which is Cuban pumpkin. That's a hard winter squash that grows really well in tropical areas like Florida. I'm not sure what else I have up there, but we have a lot up there. So be sure to go ahead and check that out. And for our new listener in Trinidad and Tobago, I just covered some of those useful online links for home gardening and food crops. And I'll go ahead and share the link to our Facebook page before the end here and other ways that you can get in contact with us and follow us. <clears throat> and that way you can find every time that we were offering another class, we've done a class, we recorded it. Where is it? They usually go on Facebook, they go on Lily's Facebook, they go on YouTube. We try to put these things in as many different places as we can to make it easy for you to be able to tune in and follow us and then watch us, you know, whenever you have the free time or at your leisure. I mean, gosh, YouTube and Facebook are great because you can sit there at basically two in the morning and watch class after class after class and learn everything that you want to learn. So we have good morning from Facebook user. That's somebody that's watching from the Facebook group. So whoever that is, good morning. How are you? Um, please be sure to, if you have any lawn and garden questions, anything specific, please feel free to go ahead and put that in the chat box. Cindy's watching from Pinellas County. So obviously we have regular listeners and then also new listeners and occasional listeners from all over Florida, apparently all over the Caribbean now, from Trinidad and Tobago. And I know we've had people from other states. We had a lady from Georgia that watched us for a bit. So we, the nice thing about social media and doing this online is we can pick up people from all over the world, essentially, at one point or another. We have Monique watching from Hernando County. Good morning, Monique. If you have any questions, feel free to go ahead and share them. And Jal has another question from Trinidad and Tobago about pawpaw leaves. And I am honestly not all that familiar with pawpaw plants. They do grow here in Florida. They are a native plant here in Florida. They'll grow wild out in the woods. People will grow them deliberately in their landscape. I'm not sure how you would go about getting a plant because they're very, very difficult to dig up and transplant. They tend to have very, very deep tap root. And if you break that tap root, they don't survive when you transplant them. So it's not as easy as just, you know, dig it up out of the ground real quick with a shovel and move it to your yard. If the leaves are turning yellow and then falling off and the top dies, that may be too much water. A lot of times yellowing leaves are an indication of too much water, too little water, or some kind of root issue, so possibly nematodes. So there's a lot of different things that could be going on with your pawpaw leaves. Just to be sure, take one of the yellow leaves that fell off and turn it over and look very, very carefully with a hand lens or a magnifying glass to make sure there aren't small insects feeding on it. 
Sometimes there's things like spider mites and aphids and white flies that feed on leaves and damage them, but they are very, very, very tiny. And you're not really going to be able to, unless you have better vision than I do, you're not going to be able to look at it and go like, oh, I see bugs on the bottom. Maybe you can't see them, but they're still there. So try using a magnifying glass and see if you see anything on the underside kind of living there or moving around. And Monique asks, can you use black cow on a lawn right now? Yes, you can. And your lawn will love you for it. Lawns really love that addition of any kind of organic matter. So we don't recommend one product over another, but black cow works well. Bags of compost, bags of topsoil. A lot of times products sold as topsoil tend to have a lot of weed seeds on in them sometime, and they're not really the greatest material. Homemade compost works great also if you spread it very, very lightly over your lawn. And whether you have St. Augustine or Bahia or whatever type of turf grass you have, your lawn will love it because it'll help build up the organic matter in the soil. It'll help hold water and moisture longer. It definitely holds the um, fertilizer nutrients better and longer when you fertilize your lawn. So it's kind of a win-win-win situation, really. It's better for your lawn than going out there and paying somebody to fertilize it, honestly. And Jess, Jess is either a new listener or maybe she has been stalking us for a while and this is just the first time she asked a question. But Jess asks, we have wild beautyberry plants that Jess fruited. It's that time of year. We have right outside my window, uh, it's just barely outside of my site, we have a beautyberry bush out there that's growing in the shade, and it's huge. It's obviously very happy growing where it is, and it flowered in the spring, got the little berries, and they are bright purple now, and just says, are they good for human consumption or only for birds? They are fine for human consumption. They're totally safe. They're not poisonous. They're not going to hurt you. People will make beautyberry jelly. And you probably could, could make beautyberry jam, but the jelly would probably be easier. So you're going to have to look online. I know uh, the USDA and University of Georgia have a lot of information online about canning and preserving and making jellies and jams. But you can make beautyberry jelly. And it comes out, it's beautiful. It comes out a beautiful shade of purple, kind of unique, you know, with jellies. And very tasty also. Uh, jellies always call for a lot of sugar. Sugar fixes everything, basically. Beauty berries don't have a really, really strong taste. You can, you can just wash them off and eat them raw if you want. Uh, they really, I don't really think they have an awful lot of taste. They're really not all that exciting. But they do make a very good jelly. And you can leave them on the bushes for your birds. Now, birds during the winter are a little bit pickier. And they will eat the beautyberry berries, but they don't eat them until late winter. Because I guess if you're a bird, beautyberries just aren't your first choice. They just don't taste the greatest. So they'll eat hollyberries first and seeds off of weeds. And all the other things that might be around the fields and forests and everything else. And then near the end of winter, they're like, 
Okay, well, I guess, you know, we're down to the beauty berries now. We're going to eat those. But birds do eat beauty berries. And it's a very, very important source of food for them. And a really good way to attract more wildlife and birds to your yard. We have people who ask, how do I attract more butterflies and pollinators and birds and pretty things to my yard? And then after talking to them, you find out they live in a subdivision. 90% of the yard is St. Augustine grass that's treated with all kinds of pesticides for chinch bugs, over fertilized, cut too short. All they have is just kind of standard, you can call it kind of sad landscape material, you know, the the hedges and the podocarpus and the things that the builders put in because they get a good price on truckloads of them. And you're looking at what they have going on. It's like, you know. If I was a butterfly or if I was a bird, I probably really wouldn't want to live in your yard. You're going to have to make some changes to make things a little bit more inviting for them to have them want to move in and either visit your yard for food or in the case of caterpillars and butterflies, move in, reproduce, lay eggs, have babies, fly around, fill your yard with butterflies by the end of summer. So you really have to. Um, take a lot of different steps to make your property more inviting for what you want to invite in. And Monique said about the black cow, she didn't know if the heat was a factor. No, totally safe. Heat is not a factor when you're adding something like black cow. Heat is a factor with lawns if you want to put down any kind of weed killer. So don't spray weed killer on your lawn when it's really hot like it still is right now. Even if it's the correct product for the type of lawn you have, let's say you have a St. Augustine lawn, you go out and you get some kind of weed control that kills weeds in St. Augustine lawns, that's fine. That's the right product. Don't spray it when it's really hot. If you read the label, it should say, do not apply this product when the temperature is above, I think, 85. And that totally depends on what product you're looking at. But they always have a warning about don't use this when it's really hot. Because what happens is if you do it when it's really hot, you may kill the weeds and your lawn also. So be very careful with weed killers when it's really hot. Be very careful if you're using any kind of oil spray. I know a lot of people in Facebook groups on uh, you know, vegetable gardening or landscape plants love using neem oil. They think that neem oil is just you know the greatest thing in the world and it's going to fix every problem you have. Be very careful spraying neem oil during the summer here in Florida because it's still an oil product and it may fry your leaves. So if you spray it all over your plant and the next day your leaves look brown and they're all dried up and they're crinkly crunchy, it's because you had a phytotoxic effect from the neem oil and it fried your plant. The plant may survive and just put out new leaves it may not survive. It all depends on how heavily you sprayed it, what kind of plant it is, what brand and type of neem you use. Depends on a lot of things. But we always advise people to be very careful with oil sprays during the heat of summer because that's another temperature and heat dependent thing. So good question, Monique. But no, you don't have to worry about black cow right now. And we have a whole bunch of people who I don't really recognize with asking questions. So that's great. Don't be shy, guys. 
feel free to jump in. Go ahead and don't be afraid of, you know, asking questions here. But Janice asks, what is a good tall plant that will get six feet tall? I want to honor a few lost loved ones, so I need three to four plants. Thanks in advance. Janice, it depends. It depends on a lot of things. It depends on if you want flowering or not flowering. Depends on exactly where you live. So I'm just going to assume that you live in Central Florida. If you live in a different state or, you know, in Miami or in Jacksonville, going to be a little bit different, probably. One of my favorite landscape plants to put outside, and it's native and should do very well in pretty much all of Florida, is one called Firebush. And we have one or two right out in front of the office. I have one in my backyard. This, okay, Janice says that she lives in Haines City. Okay, that's almost right across the state from us. So I know Firebush is going to do really, really well there. They are as close as you can get to a maintenance-free plant. They grow very quickly, turns into a nice, large, well-shaped bush. It gets shaped well all on its own. You don't have to prune it to make it look nice shape. They flower like crazy. They get small red tubular flowers from spring all the way until you get the first freeze in the winter. During the winter, they will freeze back. If you get really bad freezes, you're a little bit south of us. But chances are most winters, you're going to get at least a frost. A little frost is going to damage it a little bit. A bad frost is going to damage it a little bit more. A really bad freeze is going to damage it all the way down. And now you're going to look at your fire bush and you're going to think, oh, no, it's dead. It's completely brown. What am I going to do? Don't worry about it. When we get back up to spring, just prune it back really short in March. And you only have to prune these things once a year, and it will very quickly start to grow back and very quickly start to flower. It'll flower when it's knee high. All summer long, it loves it when it's rainy, humid, sunny, hot. So it's going to grow like crazy, flower the whole time. I don't think I've ever seen an insect problem with firebush. And firebush plants do get insects, but they don't really have problems with it. So if I grabbed the camera and marched out front right now and started examining our firebush that we have here at the office closely, number one, first thing you're going to see is butterflies all over it. Bees, pollinators, everything that likes flowers is going to visit it. Hummingbirds. I never saw a hummingbird in Florida until I had a firebush plant in my yard. And I would get these hummingbirds that started living in my yard and they're always on the plants. So I expanded from one to about 10 of them all around my yard. I think they're great. So they attract a lot of different um, wildlife and butterflies. And if we go out there and check it, yeah, we're going to find um, leaf hoppers. I'm sure we'll find aphids, mealybugs. We'll find a little bit of every insect pest out there. They never get bad enough to damage it. So if you're looking for a, a really easy, low-maintenance, because I'm really a lazy gardener, recommendation, I go with Firebush. So let's see what other kind of questions we have here. Oh, and by the way, in Central Florida, they're going to get generally about six feet tall. When you prune them back, if they freeze, um, they're going to be a lot shorter, but they very quickly grow back. If they don't freeze, you just need to trim off the, the ends a little bit, the 
the old spent flowers and seeds and everything from the previous year, just clean them up a little bit. And they can potentially, I've seen them as tall as 10 feet, which you can obviously prune them back a little bit shorter if they have to stay within a certain um, size range. And Jal has another question. Thanks for your answers. You're very, very welcome. I do my best here. And keep in mind, I'm all by myself. I don't have Lily helping out, so I can't give her the hard questions. And Teresa's on vacation, so I don't have her pulling up uh, links to share in the chat box either. So any summary tips to set up a small home organic garden, like layout, soil, uh, mixed plants, planting, things like that? Like I said, I have a lot of class videos on Hernando County Government YouTube page, and we are in the process of planning a series of, I think it's like six classes during the month of October. So starting at the end of September, I'm going to have a whole series of classes for vegetable gardening, and we'll definitely touch on organic gardening because what we stress or what I stress is low toxicity and safe gardening and integrated pest management, which all ties in with organic gardening. So we put all your different options out there. And if you want to be purely organic, that's great. We tell you everything that you can use and we'll tell you all about exciting new things that you can use. And if you don't really worry too much about organic, you want to use other things. We always focus on the lowest toxicity most safe for you and your neighbor and your dog and your kids product to use that's going to get the job done because if it's not going to work there's really no point using it whether it's organic or not we just did a class just the other day um it would be on lily's facebook page and i don't know if i have a link handy for that or not um you can go ahead and shoot lily an email because we did do a class just yesterday on uh, natural pest controls, part one. And we have part two coming up at the end of September. So I think if you're th looking for organic options for your garden, that's a really good place to start. We went through about half of the different organic things that you can use to control pests in your garden and how to use them, what they work on, when to use them, where to get them. And we're going to do the other half at the end of September. So shoot Lily an email and she'll send you a link to the class. And I think that'd be a great place to start. So what else do we have here? Okay, Cindy asked a question about the difference between vermiculite and perlite. I wanted to put some in some pot of plants to help drainage. That's a very good question. And vermiculite and perlite are both very, very lightweight materials that are mixed into quality potting soil that drain very well. Both vermiculite and perlite come from rocks that are heated to a very high temperature until they puff. So think popcorn. How do you make popcorn? You take these little rock hard kernels of corn throw them in your pan or your popcorn maker, heat them up really, really hot, and then they pop and they expand. They're very lightweight and they have a lot of air in them also. 
So vermiculite and perlite have a big surface area. They hold a lot of air. They create very, very good drainage when a little bit is mixed in with soil because soil can be very heavy. And if it's too heavy, the water doesn't drain really well and it holds too much water, it turns to mud. If you mix in vermiculite and perlite, it lets the water drain through much better. So you have a much better uh, growing media. Differences between them, from a practical point of view, not a whole lot of difference between the two. Vermiculite is generally one size. You're only going to find one size of vermiculite, and that's a very, very small. They usually look like a little square or a cube, and they're tan, tannish to grayish. Perlite are the little white balls that you might see if you go out and look at a potted plant you have that you use decent potting soil with it's mixed in a lot with potting soil so it's the little white balls that are in it perlite if you look online you could find in different sizes you can get the extra large perlite that a lot of people will use for hydroponics so you can use just pure extra large perlite to grow to use as a growing media in hydroponics not many people do it. I haven't seen it used very often, but you can do it. The problem with that is it drains really, really well. Your roots are never going to get waterlogged because it drains really well, but you're going to have to set everything up to water very, very frequently. So keep in mind, Cindy, the more vermiculite and perlite you mix in, the better your drainage is going to be, but you may need to water more often. So those are all kind of things that you may want to keep in mind there. Aunt Janice says her mother loves birds. That's great. Um, who do we have here? Jenny says she planted a firebush all along the backside of my pool cage. She absolutely loves it. The hummingbirds come so often and bees and butterflies too. Great plant. I had to move mine. It was in a spot that my it was too close to my vegetable garden, and as my vegetable garden grew, it overran that space, so I had to move the firebush. You know, if you ever have to transplant a firebush, it's really easy. Even if it's a big firebush, cut it down to like ankle high, dig it up, move it. They're tough. They'll take a lot of abuse. After you move it, you need to water it really, really well for a while till it starts to reestablish in the new spot. But I moved mine, did great, it's growing. It loves the rain now that we're finally getting it. The more rain and the more sun during the first part of the day, the better. So my fire bush on the outside of our pool cage looks great also. I probably need to put another one or two in. Bassem, thank you so much for the words of encouragement. Like I said, I'm doing my best here. At least we don't have 300 people on here all asking questions at once. That would probably just, that would just confuse me, I think. So, oh, Bernadette has a question here. Bernadette has a rose bush that she brought from Ohio. She has an pot that gets sun all day. I have fertilized it with rose food. Still no blooms. Any suggestions? <clears throat> so a rose bush that you brought from Ohio may be, um, and I have no idea what variety or type it is, is probably a hybrid tea rose. 
and they can grow here in Florida. They're going to grow a little bit easier probably in a pot because you control the watering, the fertilizer, the type of soil it's in. Florida summers are really, really tough on most roses. Most roses don't do well here, especially during the summer. So during the summer, you probably you may have noticed that you probably have black spot. You're going to have at least a little bit of black spot on some of the leaves. You may have other fungal problems. So your rose is probably going to need spraying with a fungicide during summer. Don't worry that your rose is not blooming during summer. If it's alive and doing halfway decent during summer, you're doing pretty well. When things start to cool off a little bit in the fall, your rose is going to do a lot better. So make sure it's pruned correctly and all good to go when fall hits. It's going to grow better and should flower during fall and winter. You have to protect it from a really, really hard freeze. Although if it came from Ohio and it stayed outdoors up there, it gets colder in Ohio than it's ever going to get here. So cold during the dead of winter is going to be tough on your roses. Heat, humidity, full sun in the morning, pouring rain in the afternoon, 100% humidity is really, really tough on roses here during the summer. So if your plant looks fairly good right now, you're doing well. You're doing about as well as one is going to do with roses here in Florida. So we don't tell people don't grow roses here. We just want them to understand that it's going to be difficult. It's going to take some reading, some learning, asking questions, studying. And because it's just so different, different growing conditions here than it is up north. So Jal is asking, I'm thinking about starting a home food garden. That is great. If you follow us on um, Facebook, we have so many different classes and videos and other things coming up. Let me go ahead. And I'm not sure if you're watching us on our Facebook page right now, or if you're watching us on YouTube, or if you're watching us on our Facebook group, because this this presentation goes out live to all three, but our regular office extension Facebook page, the short name for it, if you go to Facebook, is just look up Hernando EXT. That's short for Hernando Extension. That's our short Facebook name. And go ahead and follow us there and look under um, events because every time we plan a class or we plan on doing anything, we make an event for it. And we do have a lot of classes coming up on uh, food systems, planning your own vegetable garden, becoming more sustainable. We have coming up in, I think it starts in October. If anybody watching has ever participated or watched one of our classes that we have on YouTube uh, called Food Systems in Season, we have another series of that coming up. And we do that on this same platform the platform that i'm doing this on today is called Streamyard, and we can have a grand total of 10 people on here when you have 10 people the little squares get really small but you can see 10 people on here and everybody's with extension everybody has different backgrounds and expertise and we're all answering everybody's questions whether it's on raising bees or goats or organic vegetable gardening or whatever so uh, Jalu, just be sure to 
follow us on Facebook and all of our different um, offerings and classes are all going to be mentioned on there. Okay, Monique has an interesting question here about what do I think about the Duraheat River Birch for my area? And she's in downtown Brooksville, if I remember correctly. River Birch is a tree that grows well here in Central Florida, but you almost never see it. It's one of those really, really underused trees. And I wish I had uh, Jamie Lynn on here helping me out with hosting because she is a tree expert and she probably knows more about river birches in general than I do. River birches grow and you see them a lot more the further north you go. But I lived in Deltona over in Volusia County, which is almost right across the state of Florida from where I am now in Hernando County. It's a tiny bit north. It's straight across, I think, from Crystal River. And I had a river birch tree right out front and it did great and it would lose its leaves. It is deciduous. So it drops its leaves in the fall and it's totally bare during the winter, gets its leaves back in the spring. Very, very nice shade tree. Very, I liked it very much. River birch is something that more people need to plant. Dura heat must be a new variety of river birch that I'm not familiar with. But if you look at the name Dura heat, my guess is it's probably bred to be a heat-resistant or more heat-tolerant river birch that you can grow a little bit further south from where you would normally have river birches, which would be downtown Brooksville, and it would be Deltona. I can tell you from personal experience, mine in Deltona did just fine. So, so Monique, I'm not going to... I'm not going to swear to it, but my guess is it should do just fine here in Hernando County and in Brooksville. Good choice, too. It's a really, really underutilized um, tree. So Sid Taylor is joining us today. Good morning, Sid. How are you? And Sid recommends a very good book that you should be able to find at the Citrus Library or hopefully any library that you check with. Um, um, pesticide research called What Your Food Ate, How to Heal Our Land and Reclaim Our Health. So that's a very, very good book recommendation. That's great when we get suggestions and our, some of our listeners kind of help fill in the blanks in areas that I don't have the most expertise in. So thank you. I appreciate the help today. So there's a lot of really good information out there. And like I said, when you ask me, and I can't attest to anybody else, just me, if you email me a picture of an insect, uh, if it's a good, clear picture, and I can actually get a good look at what it is, I'll figure out what it is. And I'll tell you, if it's a good bug, don't kill it. Be happy you have a good bug. If it's a pest, I'm going to ask, do you have a lot of them? If you have a lot of them and it's actually damaging your plant, you may need to step in and take control. I can tell you 90% of the time I'll recommend an insecticidal soap, sometimes a horticultural oil. There are some other really, really good products out there that are very safe to use, very safe on the environment. I, in, not, in just shy of nine years, I've only recommended broad spectrum insecticides a handful of times. 
for very specific situations. So if you have a situation where you need a certain harsh, I hate to use the term harsh, but thing that we wouldn't normally recommend, you know, we're going to recommend that. But in 98% of the cases, you don't need anything stronger than insecticidal soap, um, BT for caterpillars, pyrethrin, an oil spray, something like that. So a lot of times people, what you have in your shed, if I came by and examined your shed and it helped you do inventory, you just see me shaking my head with a lot of those different things. We probably have to load them up and take them off to the landfill and drop them off. So Cindy, you're, you're very, very uh, welcome. If I explain something in a way that you don't understand or you need me to, to think up a different unusual analogy uh, right off the top of my head, just let me know, share it in the comments, and we'll keep kind of drawing, painting different word pictures until you understand it. So Jess has another question. What do you recommend with philodendrons? In Indiana, I had to keep us houseplants, but here I love to place outside and if possible, in the ground. We have a split leaf, uh, Jose Bueno, Congo Rojo, Prince of Orange, and the basic heart leaf. I am not an expert on any of the named varieties of philodendrons, although I do understand philodendrons in the macro sense. I appreciate your help and look forward to viewing more lives now that we're here in Hernando County. That's great. And if you ever miss a live, you know, if you go back to our Facebook page, Facebook saves all of them. They, when we have them, oh my gosh, going back years at this point. I was, when I started here just shy, it'll be nine years in November. We very early on started playing with Facebook, and Facebook Live, and we have stuff from way back when we were terrible and awkward and you know the, the, the camera work was kind of jiggly and everything I don't know. our camera work is still jiggly sometimes but we have a lot of great information if you just scroll back through our facebook page but philodendrons yes philodendrons will freeze and die when it gets down to really really cold like freezing or below so in indiana my guess is you had them as houseplants, and they probably did very well as houseplants. They get finicky with their light. It's one of those fussy houseplants. You know, the light has to be not too much, not too little. Watering has to be not too much, not too little. Humidity level, not too much, not too little. But if you get it right, they can do beautifully. Here in Central Florida, you can plant them outside. But before Sid starts putting comments down at the very bottom here, you must be careful with them. People will plant them outside in the ground and let them crawl up a tree. And they'll crawl a little ways up a tree and philodendrons can change their leaf size and shape. Now, all of a sudden, it'll keep growing up the tree, making huge leaves and they can become quite invasive. They can become a bit dangerous and a pest for the tree further south of here. So, so Jess, I think that you lived in, oh no, it was Janice that lives in Haines City. 
So Jess, if you say where you live, that will help me kind of narrow things. Oh, okay. Well, Jess, I'm sorry. You you said you live here in Hernando County. You can plant them outside. Chances are most every winter they're going to get knocked back by freezes but not killed. So your philodendrons growing outside are not going to be a huge problem. People in South Florida, if you start putting your philodendrons in the ground outside, they're going to crawl up a tree and they're going to become basically an invasive weed for you. And they might damage the tree by covering it over and blocking sunlight and photosynthesis. If a buddy tries this up in the panhandle, your philodendron is probably going to freeze and die during the winter. Now, you can put your philodendrons, if you have them growing in containers, putting them outside in the shade during the summer where they stay in the shade or maybe get a little bit of speckled sunlight. They love that. A lot of houseplants here in Central Florida, you could put outside during the summer because they really, really like the extra humidity, warmth, uh, speckled sun. They're going to grow larger and be very happy and healthy. And then in the winter, since they're in a pot, you can bring them back inside when we start to get some really cold weather. So just, yeah, you can put them in philodendrons in the ground. Makes me a tiny bit nervous. You're going to have to keep an eye on them to make sure that they don't go absolutely nuts because I've seen them in people's yards. Sometimes they go nuts and they'll start to cover a tree. So Jess, you're very welcome. Hopefully I did. I answered that one correctly. Um, and going back to Bernadette's rose, she doesn't know the exact type of rose. Yeah, a lot of times a rose that maybe you've had for a number of years, you know what color it is when it flowers, but you don't know the exact named variety. And a lot of the um, David Austin roses and tea roses, they're beautiful roses. Don't get me wrong. I like roses as much as the next guy. It's just they can have a lot of disease problems here. They can have a lot of problems with tiny insects that get in the flowers called thrips. They can just have a lot of problems here in Central Florida. And Bernadette says she hers does not have any black spots. That's good. I'll, you will find, as a general rule, a lot of times when it starts to cool off, your roses will start to get a, a, a new burst of growth, and then they'll flower. Lee, very good question. Any hydroponic class in the future? Yes, we will. As a matter of fact, I have I am the mentor for a new extension agent who is up in Marion County, and he was going to be here with us today, but he had something else to do, so he couldn't join us today, but probably will within the next week or two, and he is an expert on hydroponics. He worked on school gardens and hydroponics with Marion County School System for a number of years, so yeah, I'm going to I'm going to pigeonhole him to do a class on hydroponics in the near future. So as always, continue following us and our events on Facebook, and you can keep track of everything we have coming up. And if you want even another way to follow us, if you go to that website, www.hernandoextensionalloneword.com, and click on that. That is a listing of all of our events and classes coming up. 
you don't have to be a member of Facebook. You don't have to be a member of anything. That's a just, we're able to magically transport all of our events on Facebook to this freestanding web page just for you to make it just as easy for everybody to follow us and keep track of what we have coming up. Because you know what? Half the time, I can't hardly keep track of what we have coming up. Um, okay, Monique asks, what's a small but fast-growing evergreen tree that I like? Evergreens are tough here in Central Florida, and everybody likes evergreens. We get questions. People will purchase, and I don't know where they buy them. Maybe they buy them online. Maybe they have them at big box stores. I'm not sure. Arizona cypress, and they plant them. And if you think about it, our weather is about as different from Arizona's weather as you could possibly get. Yeah, it gets hot here in the summer. If you ever been to Arizona, it gets really hot there, but it's bone dry there. It is soupy humid here. And most of the rest of the weather patterns are very, very, very different. The only evergreens that consistently do well here in Central Florida is going to be a southern red cedar. It is native to Central Florida. And you say small. They are fast growing. If you put it in a spot that it likes and you watch the watering early on as soon as you plant it, Make sure it does not dry out really badly. If it dries out terribly, it's going to totally turn brown. But make sure it gets watered, but not over water because they don't like mud. They like watering, but if we get a lot of rain, you don't have to water that day. If you can get the watering right and get it off to a good start, pretty quickly, once they get established, you really never have to water them again. They get by just great off of natural rainfall. They're going to grow. They're going to get a good shape. They're really good for birds. Birds love to sit in them. And then sometime when it gets a little bit bigger, they'll make birds nests in them because it gets really good protection. If you had to prune it to keep it to a certain size, if you start young, they are prunable. So I would say Southern red cedar because every other one is gonna have a problem at some point. And then you're gonna be shooting me an email or asking a question. Um, about it because it's really the only one that grows and does well here in central florida long term chow asks what environmentally safe management to stop african snails they have to generally be physically managed so if in trinidad and tobago if you have giant african land snails i'm sorry i'm very sorry to hear that we do have them here in florida in the county just south of us, Pasco County, they've been found there. And the state of Florida is working very hard to catch all of them and dispatch all of them. So here in Florida, the only people who might have a problem with giant African land snails are people who live in a small area in Pasco County. But if you have a, uh, a problem with giant African land snails down there in Trinidad and Tobago, generally uh, physically gathering them up. You can freeze them and kill them. You can uh, 
physically dispatch them, throw them in a, um, in a bucket of soapy water or water and bleach or something like that. Catherine asks, what can I use on my milkweed for rust and when is it best to apply? That's a tough one. I've really never seen rust before on milkweed. Milkweed can get different diseases. There's probably a rust that it can get. The problem is if you're raising the milkweed to support monarch butterfly caterpillars, there's really no fungicide that I'd feel safe spraying that's not going to injure or kill the um, caterpillars. If you don't have caterpillars on your milkweed, what may be safer to do is any affected leaves or plant parts that do have a fungus or rust on them, if you carefully prune them off and throw them away, get rid of them, throw them in your household trash to make them go away, that would probably be a better way to stop the rust or the fungus from spreading. The problem with spraying milkweed for anything is you have, if you're trying to raise caterpillars, things like insecticides, obviously, fungicides, uh, other products would probably be damaging to the caterpillars. The good thing is milkweed tends to be tough as nails. It can have a fungus and it can have aphids. And this time of year, you're getting your milkweed bugs on there too. That's a little bug that's orange and black. And they're feeding on just the seeds on your milkweed. It's not damaging the rest of the plant. You can get caterpillars on your milkweed and they'll eat all the leaves. And you know what happens to the milkweed? Shakes it off and grows right back. They're tough as nails. You rarely, and I mean, it, it does happen, but you don't often see milkweeds completely killed because of any one of those problems. So, okay, Jess, you live in Wikiwachi, so that's right down the street here. Uh, welcome to the neighborhood. Welcome to Hernando County. And you're very welcome. And Diana Easter says there's a pothos on the oak here, and she has to keep it in check. So, yes, yeah, some of them, if they become established and they become very, very happy, they will grow like a weed, and you're going to have to keep an eye on them. You can trim them back. You can cut them back. Just you don't ever want to be taking these kind of what you would probably consider up north a house plant and just throw them in the woods and abandon them because they may establish takeover spread and start to cause problems. So Cindy asks, what do you think of Joe Pie? Does it grow in Florida? Yes, it does. It's a great attractant for butterflies, pollinators. The te technically the common name of it is Joe Pie weed. And people who moved here from up north might be thinking, Joe Pie weed, ah, that grows all over the, next to the highway and in the fields and this and that. Yeah, well, it's a native plant here, and it's wonderful. It flowers, may not be the most attractive plant to some people. You know, beauty's in the eye of the beholder. But if you have a pollinator garden or a wildlife garden, the key to success is variety. So Joe Pie is an underutilized plant that grows just fine here in Florida that you can add to the variety of your garden 
if you throw enough host plants for caterpillars and flowering plants to flower all different times of the year, you're going to have a garden that looks good, you know, and it's going to change week by week by week. This is going to flower. That's going to flower. This flowers in the fall. Um, some people may look at it and go like, oh, that looks like a bunch of weeds alongside of the road. Just ignore them. They live in HOAs with dead lawns anyway. So uh, you're going to have a, a beautiful garden and you're always going to have a steady supply of different butterflies and pollinators coming and going. So go for it. Chill pie weed, definite winner. And yes, it works great for butterflies. And Cindy says, I have a blotchy roselle. Uh, kind of medium green and yellow roselle is a type of hibiscus. The one that gets the, the flowers and the calyx that you can make into a tea, I assume. But doesn't matter. This, this would kind of apply to any kind of hibiscus or hibiscus relative or family member. No flowers yet. I fertilized it last week. Fertilizing would probably help. They need to be fertilized on a fairly regular basis, but the key to that is just fertilize very, very lightly, but don't forget and do it frequently during the rainy season. Because with a lot of plants, whether it's in a pot or in the ground, all the rain we get tends to wash out the fertilizer. So if you dump a ton of fertilizer on it, chances are a lot of that is gonna get washed out the next time you get a huge rain. And where does it end up? Where does it go? It goes downward. What's underneath all of us? The aquifer. What are you helping to add to? Water pollution. What really, really likes things like nitrogen and phosphorus in surface water? Things like red tide, blue-green algae, and we don't want to do that. If you fertilize very, very lightly, your plant will most likely take up all the fertilizer or almost all of it before any of it gets washed away. So fertilizer in the plant, very good thing. Fertilizer into the um, aquifer, very bad thing. So if, if it was blotchy, medium green and yellow, they do need a pretty steady supply of fertilizer. So it'll probably be fine. Wait a few days to a week or so when the fertilizer gets incorporated, kind of gives it a kick. Hopefully it'll get a flush of new growth and hopefully that new growth will include flowers. They're flowering now. I think from now until fall is generally when you see them flower. Alicia, good morning. How are you? You haven't asked any questions yet, but we're going to, oh my gosh, look at this. You guys are great. I only have to think of things to talk about for maybe five minutes. And then once you get over your shyness and start throwing in questions, a whole hour has gone by. It is 10.59 at this point. So let's go ahead and start working towards wrapping up here. Oh, my gosh. Very quickly, I have a bunch more to go through. Um, Cindy says, don't grow a Norfolk pine unless you have lots of land. Good point. You can get a Norfolk pine for Christmas. You can plant it in your front yard. If it will do one of two things, it'll either promptly die because it's really unhappy where you put it. It'll become established. It'll become very happy and it will grow twice as tall as your house. And eventually it's going to be a problem. You're going to have to cut it down. Don't put them near your house. If you have a lot of property, yeah, put one way out there. 
they can get amazingly tall and skinny. So in a, a really bad storm, they can potentially snap and fall on top of a car, house, whatever it might be. Darcy asks, can firebush be kept to a relatively short bush and still flower well? Yes, it can. They do have dwarf varieties of uh, firebush. I think get to, and I'm not positive, I'm thinking maybe four feet tall maximum. Look online. You're probably going to have to order it online from uh, a nursery. Or if you have a good nursery near where you live, or you can try a big box store. They may have it. But look for dwarf firebush. They do exist. They are out there. And I think they get to four feet tall or so. Um, Alicia, you did ask a question. Um, Alicia says, we have collards, tomatoes, peppers, and cabbage, butter lettuce, and romaine seedlings. Can we start planting now? I am in Orange County, Florida. Some of those things, looking through your list, tomatoes and peppers, if you have seedlings for them, you can start putting them in the ground now. Other things, collards, Collards technically take a good amount of heat. You can push it and put them in now. Personally, I think it's still a little early. Cabbage, butter lettuce, and romaine seedlings. Personally, I wait until October 1st, although the, the research and the recommendations say you can put them in starting in September. And we are, oh my goodness, we're only a couple days away from September. So I would try to hold off at least a week or two or maybe three for the cabbage, butter lettuce, and romaine. But that's just me. You could push and put them in now. We are day by day getting closer to the time of year where you can start putting things back into the ground and planting things in the ground by seed for this coming fall and winter. And Cindy says with the um, Roselle, yes, that's the kind that uh, you can eat or drink. And Cindy says that's exactly what she wanted, pollinators all year. And the other Cindy, gosh, we have the Battle of the Cindy's going on here. That's great, though, you know. Let's, let's, let's try to get 100 Cindy's on here all asking questions. But the other Cindy with the Roselle, said she has only fertilized that once. That's fine. If it's growing very slowly, not flowering, and especially if it's looking yellowish, with anything in the hibiscus family, they can all get fussy. Too much water or too little water, the leaves are going to turn yellow and drop. Too much sun or too little sun, it gets fussy, the leaves turn yellow and drop too little fertilizer and if let's say you ever made the mistake of dumping too much fertilizer on it hopefully nobody's going to do that but too much fertilizer probably does the same thing leaves yellow and drop so they can be a little like lily likes to say little divas and get very very fussy about their surroundings and she does have buds yeah they flower late summer so they sh could be flowering now and they will hopefully be flowering up until fall 
and the first cold. So Lee, as always, you are very, very welcome. Darcy, you are very welcome also. So near we, here we have Nirmala from Trinidad and Tobago. How could to control crickets and baychacks on land that's unable to produce any crops? We don't have a problem with crickets here other than if they get in your garage or maybe in your house and start chirping and causing a problem. When you say crickets, though, you may be talking about mole crickets, uh, some other kind of specific pest. And because you're in another country, you may have different insect pests that we don't even have here in Florida that we're trying to keep out. Or maybe they have them in South Florida and they don't have them here in Central Florida. So I'm not all that familiar with them. Tell you what, for anybody from another country, I do work a lot with other extension agents. Um, I work with um, Norma Samuel, who was my mentor a couple years ago. And she works right next door in Sumter County. And she works a lot with growers down in different Caribbean islands. So that's the nice thing about extension. I don't have to know everything. I just have to know lots of people and they know everything. So let me go ahead and um, put down my email address. If you have questions about agriculture in foreign countries, if you just shoot me an email, send me pictures. Pictures help a lot so that you know we're all on the same page. I know exactly what we're talking about here. I'm more than happy to to kind of drag Norma in and have her answer the question. As a matter of fact, I'll try to get her on here, um, not next Thursday, because I won't be here, but the Thursday after that, because both Norma and I will be out of town at a conference next week. Uh, yeah, I'll get her on here because she's much more qualified to answer those Caribbean uh, commercial grower kind of questions than I am. So for any of our new viewers down there in Trinidad and Tobago, Shoot me an email there. No, no, no. Other way, there's my email address right there. And we'll get you all set up with an answer. So last question. Very last question for today. Alicia says, I'm doing container gardening for the ceiling. seedlings. That's great. They'll all do well in containers as long as it's a big enough container. Uh, that is still okay, right? Yes, it is. I grow lots of vegetables in containers. I can manipulate and move the containers due to rain. That's very, very helpful. Containers have some really good benefits. You can move them because of rain. Later in the winter, if it's something that's sensitive to cold, you could move it somewhere to keep it warmer. And if it's something that's growing long-term in a pot like peppers, Peppers, during the cooler time of year, you can move it where it's getting a lot of sun. During the heat of summer, you can move it where it's getting less sun and more shade and more speckled sunlight. So that's a really, really big advantage to growing containers. They move. Unless you have a really, really huge container, in which case that really doesn't move. So you need to keep that in mind when you're setting it up. Uh, you don't want to hurt yourself dragging around, you know, 200-pound huge containers. You know, they make containers of really big sizes. So we don't want to see anybody get hurt. And Alicia, thank you. 
Thank you so much, everybody, for tuning in. You guys are great. Uh, let me go ahead and I have my email up here. Let me go ahead and show you our office contact information. If you ever have a question, a problem, feel free to call our office. I can tell you right now, I'm really, really hard to get a hold of on the phone. Best way to get a hold of me is shoot me an email, send lots of pictures. No such thing as too many pictures. Just attach a lot of pictures. And if I don't know the answer to whatever your question is, we'll help figure it out. Or as soon as we get Lily back on here, Lily knows everything. We'll, we'll save the hard questions for her. So Monique, thank you so much. And Alicia, thank you. Thank you so much, everybody, for tuning in. We will be back here again next Thursday at 10 a.m. I will not be here. Lily will be here. And I think she's going to have Master Gardener Bernie on with her. So for everybody who's a big fan of Bernie's, he'll be on here. Save all the hard questions for him, especially long questions, citrus questions, and sometimes tree questions. He can answer them all. So with that, guys, thank you so much for tuning in. And we appreciate all the, all the followers and all the kind words. We will see everybody back here hopefully next Thursday at 10 a.m. Until then, see you later. Bye.